Good afternoon, everyone. This is Pill Eater. I'm here with Cartrell Payne. Today is May the 7th, 2022. I'm here with the wonderful Keith Preston and just catching up in uh, politics and what it's about. So, uh, hi, Keith. Hello. Oh, hello. And hello, Cartrell. Thank you. Well, um, Keith, it's uh, been some time actually actually tuning into what you're doing, but if you can give us pretty much an update of what's going on in uh, the wonderful world of politics right now or any interest, what you think about the abortion case, I'm, I'm just curious to know. Uh, well, yeah, that's probably the most significant thing that's happened in recent days. Um, I don't know that it's the most important thing that's going on in the world as a whole right now. But uh, I do think that the abortion uh, case that's come along in the last few days has been very interesting because, um, first of all, you have the issue with the uh, leak itself, which is somewhat unusual. Um, normally, you don't really have these kinds of uh, leaks taking place at the Supreme Court level. Uh, also, parallel to that uh, is the fact that this is uh, a very uh, serious situation in terms of the impact it's going to have on the American culture war. Um, the, as we know, the United States is heavily divided into these culture war factions, and uh, abortion is one of the key issues that drives the culture war. It's not the only one, but it's one of the uh, most uh, potent ones. Uh, and what, what the impact of the uh, abortion decision is going to be if, if, is that uh, abortion policy is going to be returned to the states, uh, which means individual states can pretty much have their own abortion policy. Uh, and that's really interesting to consider because th this is an issue that is so uh, contentious and where people have such emotionally held views. Um, and where extremes tend to dominate the conversation that I think what we're going to see is we're going to see some states, uh, you know, if, if this actually happens, if this uh, uh, leak uh, indicates what the Supreme Court is likely to do, uh, what we're going to see is some states probably going all out and abandoning, ab abandoning abortion and charging women who have illegal abortions with murder and things like that, or not to mention doctors. Uh, and at the same time, some other states are probably going to go to the other extreme. They're probably going to codify abortion rights uh, up to the more moment of pregnancy. Uh, there are some people on the further end of the, of, of, the, of the left who even want to go so far as to legalize infanticide and things like that. I know that's Peter Singer, I think, has a viewpoint like that, uh, who's a well-known ethicist. Um, so we're going to see uh, the United States become a patchwork of localities, states and localities that have uh, widely divergent abortion policies, and some of which are going to be very extreme, uh, particularly when compared to each other. And in the so-called purple states, it's going to be a constant back and forth. You're going to have a Republican uh, administration that gets elected at the state level, uh, and then they're going to ban abortion, and then a Democratic uh, administration is going to come in and then reverse the ban, and, and that's going to keep going back and forth for years. Um, so if we thought the culture wars were intense before, they just got a lot more intense. I guess that's the, the main thing we can take away from this. I mean, yeah, like, uh, the question I want to ask, ask you is, what do you think, where do you think the national anarchist movement is going? Because when I was younger, it seemed like it was growing into something, but, you know, I think it's just kind of fell, in, fell off in recent years. Well, do you mean the people who actually call themselves national anarchists, or do you mean anarchism as a movement on a wide... No, I mean, like, the people who actually call themselves national anarchists. Yeah, well, the national anarchist movement was banned from the internet. Uh, what happened is that after the January 6th incident, you had some people that participated in that who were wearing national anarchist symbols. And after that, a lot of the uh, social media companies banned anything associated with national anarchism, like the uh, all, all of the Facebook groups for national anarchists were banned after that. 
so national anarchism still exists. The, the thing about national anarchism is that most national anarchists are not Americans. Most of them are Europeans or they're in Latin America or other parts of the world. So um, they, they don't really have quite the presence in the United States as, uh, as some other types of anarchists. Um, there have been a couple of national anarchist groups in the United States that uh, one of which was expelled because they became essentially what amounted to a white power group and they were expelled more or less from national anarchism. Uh, and then there was a second group that eventually became more like a pro-Trump group over time and they were more or less expelled as well. Uh, so national anarchism still exists, uh, and it's but it's it still is on some um, online forums like MeWe and some of those. Uh, you know, some individuals associated with national anarchism still have Facebook pages, uh, but it doesn't really seem to have quite the presence in the United States that it once had. It's predominantly a, a European movement now, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, you you got a point because. Uh, maybe this is just my, well, it's not just my viewpoint, but to me, American politics is so stupid. Like, on the one, I mean, like, the our left and our right, you know, are are so terrible. Like, to quote, like, one of my favorite YouTubers, you know, like Kyle Kalinske, he said, in a country that made sense, you know, the, the Democrats would be like the, the, the right wing party. And the Republicans would be like the far right, but American politics is so right wing compared to other Western countries that, you know, our Democratic Party seems liberal and our Republican Party seems to be right wing centrist, even though it's really not. Well, I think that's true. Uh, if you compare American politics with those of most any other country that has a similar governmental system in the sense of being a modern liberal democracy, you know, not a, not a monarchy like Saudi Arabia, not a, a one-party state like China. Um, you would generally find that in a system like that, yeah, the, 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 what the Republicans are today are like a far-right plutocratic party. I mean, they believe that the rich should rule in the interest of the rich, and that's how it ought to be. Uh, you, that's, that's the kind of party you might find, say, on the far right in some of the Latin American countries. Uh, like, like a good example would be the uh, Republican Nationalist Alliance, the ARENA, which is the right-wing party in El Salvador. Um, also, the Republicans are an extreme militarist party. I mean, the you know, military spending can never be high enough, uh, that kind of thing. Um, while there has been a revival of isolationist or Taft-type Republicans who are more non-interventionist, most Republicans are still neocons. I mean, they believe in a, an aggressive militarist foreign policy. Um, so they're basically like Israel's Likud party on, on foreign policy. Uh, so you know, yeah. if you took Israel's Likud party and El Salvador's arena party and put them together, you pretty much have the Republican party paradigm on, on foreign policy and economics. Yeah, like I, oh, yeah, like I uh, said to a female friend, you know, yesterday, you know, um, the Republicans have changed so much from the time of Nixon. I, I said at this point, Republicans, they don't care about the Constitution. What they want is like an American version of Franco's Spain or the Salad Sars Portugal or like Cod Ray News Romania, like a clerical fascist state. Well, they're not that sophisticated in, in, in a lot of their thinking. Um, uh, the, um, one thing that I think is, is interesting about Trump is that on a rhetorical level, he sort of revived the kind of Nixonian populism that you saw back in the early seventies. Uh, if you look into his background and affiliations, uh, Trump is basically just a Rockefeller Republican at heart, like, you know, Nelson Rockefeller or someone like that. In fact, I suspect he was heavily influenced by Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, and then he puts on this kind of faux populism like Nixon used to do, the silent majority and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and that's kind of what, and, and, and he's a lot like Nixon in the sense that he's hated by the media. You know, he left office under a bunch of scandals. He was impeached, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so he's, he, Trump is a very Nixonian figure. And you also have someone like Tucker Carlson who sort of revived the Taft Republican tradition that's more like, you know, uh, 
uh, isolationism and foreign policy, uh, and 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 on a even on a more general level, on the ground level, you see the Republicans' base going back to kind of like what the old right was in the 1920s, like the right wing in the 1920s in the United States that was represented by figures like say Calvin Coolidge or Herbert Hoover, they tended to be more non-interventionist in foreign policy. They tended to be more protectionist in trade policy and they tended to be immigration restrictionists as well. And that's kind of what Trump's movement is in a way. It's this kind of almost paleo-conservative type of movement. Although, but that's not really dominant in the Republican Party. I mean, the leadership of the Republican Party are, are still neocons. It's an alliance of the defense contractors, the, the uh, various other business interests uh, with the Israel lobby, the Saudi lobby, and all that kind of stuff. And Trump was in on that 100%. Uh, you know, so so it's still a neocon-led party. Um, the you know the the grassroots Trump movement is you know more of a populist movement that I think, in its more serious forms, is kind of like the old right from the from the twenties. Although it has an element of know nothingism as well. Like if you go back and you look at the the so-called know nothings from the nineteenth century, they were very uh, they were an anti-Catholic party. You know, they thought that you know, if we couldn't have Catholic immigration because the cat the uh, the Catholics would turn the country over to the Pope. You know, it's the same kind of xenophobia you see today when it comes to say Mexicans or uh, or Muslims or, or some of these other population groups. So I, I agree with that partially in the sense that you know, the, the Republicans as in their present form couldn't really be called fascists in, in a European sense or, or uh, and, but they are not even clerical per se. I think they're more, more just sort of a populist right-wing party on the ground level that has elements of some of these older things like the old right, the know-nothings and all of that. But but at the leadership level, they're still neocons. I mean, yeah, you, you got a point because, you know, like America is a liberal country. Like even our conservatives are liberal. Like European conservatism, unless you count like maybe the Southern agrari agrarians or like the loyalists during the Revolutionary War has never really had like a lot of influence in American politics. Yeah, I'm actually working on an article about that now uh, that's going to be published in an anthology that Paul Godfrey's putting together, I think. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right in the sense that uh, from the start, the United States was more of a liberal nation in a classical sense. You know, historic European conservatism is the throne and altar tradition. You know, it's the monarchy, the, the hereditary aristocracy, the established church. Uh, and like you were saying, in the, in the colonial period, we had the loyalists who often did have that kind of perspective. But the American Revolution was something of a revolution by the gentry and by the merchant class uh, against the traditional European elite. Uh, and that's really what the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence is. It reflects this kind of 18th century liberal philosophy. Um, and then, of course, the French Revolution was a more extreme version of the same idea as well. Um, so uh, the United States has always been a historically liberal country. And then, you know, the, the Republicans of today are a mixture of classical liberals, uh, neoliberals, I guess you could say conservative liberals, uh, as well as neocons, and which actually has its roots in the left, and, and also uh, populists, just ordinary populists. Um, and just like the Democrats are a mixture of modern reform liberals, like influenced by thinkers like John Rawls, uh, as well as neoliberals, as well as progressive liberals, you know, the whole American progressive tradition. Um, that's really what the um, Democrats are. Now, uh, as we were saying earlier, both of these po points of view are essentially center-right. I mean, in, in a European country today, uh, well, not just in Europe, in Latin America, even in some Asian countries, um, I think the Republicans would be considered a far-right populist party, uh, kind of like the national, uh, I, I don't know what they call themselves now, they used to be the National Front, but the... Uh, the one, the Le, Maureen Le Pen's party in France, you know, uh, the Republicans 
are more like that. In fact, I think Le Pen is probably to the left of the Republicans, but uh, the Republicans are more like the uh, the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland in, in Germany or something like that. Um, the Democrats are more like a center-right party in Europe, like uh, they would probably be, they would be to the right of someone like Angela Merkel's uh, Christian Democrats that are that are in Germany are actually considered the conservative party. Um, so, uh, or, or they would probably be uh, Democrats in terms of their actual policies, they would probably in some ways be to the right of even Boris Johnson's Tories. Um, so uh, yeah, the Democrats are center right party by world standards and the Republicans are a far right party by world standards. They're not fascist. Calling the Republicans fascist is a bit of a reach. I think that's an overuse of, of fascism. But I think your general uh, analytical framework holds up. Yeah, I mean, you got a point because, you know, like I was reading about, you know, L. Brent Basel Jr. You know, uh, he was a guy who founded a magazine called Triumph. It was like this far right Catholic magazine. And, you know, he, he said once to his one of his friends, he would love to have like a Catholic theocracy like in Spain. And his friend told him that that was a dumb, a dumb idea and that, some, and that the type of conservatism that he espoused would go down hard in America because he said Franco might be okay for Spain, but there's no way that would work in America. Yeah, I'm actually mentioning uh, Bozell in the article I'm, I'm writing. It's interesting you bring him up. But uh, yeah, Brent Bozell was, um, a friend of William F. Buckley. He, he, Bozell married one of Buckley's sisters. I can't remember which one, but uh, yeah, so he was, he was actually the brother-in-law of William F. Buckley, and he was, he was a right-wing Catholic. He admired these kind of clerical authoritarian regimes like, uh, like Franco in, in Spain and also Salazar in, in Portugal, figures like that, you know, this kind of clerical, uh, the right-wing authoritarianism. Uh, and interestingly, when the National Review, yeah, it really is ironic you're asking me about this because I've been writing about this in recent days, but uh, in, in the 1950s, when National Review was founded, which was sort of the flagship of post-war conservatism in the United States, um, the National Review was a departure from what conservatism had been prior to that. Prior to World War II, conservatism had been what I was just describing. It was the kind of Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, you know, small town, main street uh, type of conservatism that was, um, you know, isolationist in foreign policy, protectionist in trade policy, things like that. With National Review, what you get is you get this weird mixture of uh, uh, what's, what would today be called neoliberal economists, the Milton Friedman types, uh, along with these kind of right-wing Catholics that were completely foreign to American culture, like Brazil. And then you also get these ex-communists who want to wage war against their former comrades. So that's what Buckley's, William F. Buckley's National Review Circle was in the 50s and 60s. It was this weird mixture of right-wing Catholics former communists who became staunch cold warriors like James Burnham and Whitaker Chambers and Frank Meyer and people like that. And then these free market neoliberal economists like Milton Friedman, that, that becomes post-war conservatism. And then they, they start getting the support of the, um, the Goldwater conservatives, like what the Goldwater conservatives were, were Sun, it's uh, Sunbelt Capitalism is what that is. In fact, there's a book uh, called Sunbelt Capital. It's a work in economic histo uh, history that explains this. They talk about how in the post-war period, you had an insurgency within American capitalism by Sunbelt Capital. And Sunbelt is basically the South, the West, the South, the West you know, like the Southern states, the Midwest, Southern California, Texas, Arizona, the, the, that region. Historically, American capitalism has been dominated by the Northeastern establishment, the Rockefellers, the Kennedys, the Morgans, you know, that kind of stuff. But this was an insurgency by the, by the capitalism from other regions of the country against the Northeastern establishment. So you had a big conflict within the Republican party 
uh, between the Goldwater conservatives and the Rockefeller Republicans. You know, the Rockefeller Republicans were um, Eisenhower, um, uh, Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, people like that. And you had the Goldwater rights who had a further right economic viewpoint that was basically uh, uh, a form of capitalism that was more unabashedly plutocratic. They didn't even want to put on a liberal pretense like the Rockefeller model of capitalism did. Um, so you had, and the, and the Sun, Sunbelt Capital, the Goldwater conservatives, they, got, they formed an alliance with the William F. Buckley circle that I was just describing. And then that they got Barry Goldwater uh, nominated as the presidential candidate for the Republican Party in 1964. He got slaughtered in the election against uh, Lyndon Johnson. But ultimately, the Goldwater-Buckley alliance uh, form, formed a, 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 a wider alliance with the neoconservatives, who were basically former leftists who moved rightward. Um, and then, and also the religious right, the evangelicals, the, the anti-abortion movement, and that's how Ronald Reagan got elected in 1980. Uh, and it, and that's you know that's largely defined conservatism or the Republican Party for the last 40 years or so until Trump came along. It's interesting because. When I think about that short history about the far right, it's, um, or I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say far right, I would actually say just milk toast right. It's kind of bizarre we're in a situation where liberals will tend to advocate Ukraine, but kind of ignore that the Azov Battalion is behind Ukrainian forces. So I was just curious, what do you think about Azov Battalion and kind of this bizarre, um, you know, American fund the neo-Nazi state conundrum? Yeah, uh, well, that whole situation is interesting. I mean, first of all, anyone who knows anything about international relations will tell you that in the whole Northern Hemisphere, the global North, the countries that are the two most corrupt are Russia and Ukraine. Um, and so you have a, what's, what amounts to a war between you know, the, the two most corrupt countries in the Northern Hemisphere. The reason that we have seen the Americans respond the way they have to the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine is obvious. Ukraine is a border state to NATO uh, and the Americans want to expand NATO onward towards Russia's borders even further including Ukraine, including Georgia, including the, the Scandinavian countries and so forth. Uh, obviously the Russians view that as a security threat. What they want is to restore the old Russian empire. You know, the, I mean, Putin is essentially a 19th century Russian nationalist. He wants to reclaim the territories that were part of the old Russian empire uh, in Eastern Europe, the Baltic states and, and in Central Asia and, and the Caucasus and all of that. So it's basically, you know, U.S. imperialism versus Russian imperialism. Um, the, uh, the yeah, it is interesting how liberal and left opinion has generally rallied behind Ukraine uh, in a way that's kind of funny, actually. Um, but um, I, I think the reason for that is clear as well. Um, the Russians uh, have been the subject of relentless um, hostile propaganda for about eight years, uh, going back to when Russia uh, and it, it invaded Crimea back in uh, 2014, uh, which was in part response, uh, in a partially a response to a one of these color-coded revolutions that the uh, United States had carried out in Ukraine, but you know whatever the background backstory to that, uh, you know, certainly media opinion, certainly the government propaganda took a much sharper anti-Russian turn during that point. But what really escalated that was um, two things. One is the uh, view of the American left that Russia is a homophobic nation based on the incident some years ago uh, involving the, the Pussy Riot girls. You know, they're, uh, but they were some kind of all-female punk rock band that got sent to jail for vandalizing a, a, a Russian Orthodox church or 
something like that, you know, some sort of feminist protest against, you know, whatever uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, and the fact that uh, Russia, you know, does not recognize gay marriage, Russia has laws, you know, homosexuality is not illegal in Russia, but they have laws against, you know, basically teaching children about homosexuality. You know, their own version of the don't say gay law in Florida, or something like that is kind of what that is. Um, so the American left, of course, in its present form is to a large degree defined by its support for gay rights, the whole LGBTQ configuration. That's one of its flagship issues. So there's been a major uh, sharp turn in the American left against Russia over that. Uh, and, and then the final straw, I think, was the was Russia gate. You know, the fact that when Trump was elected, that was a major uh, shock to the American left. You know, they they viewed Trump as a fascist figure, which, which I think is is silly, but that's how they viewed it. Uh, and then they wanted somebody to blame. And then the for years and years, the liberal wing of the American media, as well as Democrats in Congress, pushed this narrative that Donald Trump is a Russian puppet, that the Russians uh, helped Trump steal the election, you know, all these kinds of things. So all of, all of these, these situations have converged to create an American left that is extremely Russophobic. I mean, the American left today is like what the right wing was when I was growing up. When I was growing up, the Cold War was still going on. And you had groups like the John Birch Society, you know, who thought that, you know, everybody was a communist. You know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, they, they accused William F. Buckley of being a communist. They accused Eisenhower of being a communist. Um, and that kind of stuff, um, now you find it on the left. You find this extreme Russophobia that's rooted in Russia Gate and anti-Trumpism and, and perceived Russian homophobia and uh, in, in the going back to the to Crimea back in the in 2014. So now we have this weird spectacle where the the left are hawkish on Ukraine. I mean, not every individual, obviously, but a, a lot of the uh, sectors of the left are very hawkish on Ukraine. Uh, and then the, uh, yeah, you have these battalions, these, uh, these, these uh, neo-Nazi paramilitary groups in Ukraine. Now, it's, I think it's important not to exaggerate their influence. It's, it's not that Ukraine is a neo-Nazi regime per se. Uh, it's, it's an authoritarian regime. It's a corrupt regime, but it's not a neo-Nazi regime. What, what the situation with groups like Azov is that imagine in the United States, if the US military were to actually bring say the Oath Keepers and the, the Proud Boys and you know the, the, the alt-right, you know, some of these further right white nationalists, whatever type of groups, uh, radical nationalists or whatever. Imagine if the US military were to actually say deputize those as a branch of the military or something, you know, sort of like the, the National Guard or something. Uh, that's more or less what the situation is with Azov. You have these five very far right neo Nazi or neo Nazi leaning paramilitaries that have more or less been brought into the Ukrainian military as sort of like a National Guard type of unit as a branch of the military. Uh, you know, they're not the regular. Ukrainian military, but they are sort of like a special forces or, you know, deputized citizen militia or something. Uh, and they really are neo-Nazis for real. I mean, if you look at the symbolism and stuff they use, it's, it's, it's they're neo-Nazis. Um, uh, even though the president of uh, Ukraine is Jewish uh, and they, and they don't like him, by the way, the, 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 you know, they, they tolerate him, but they don't like him. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's what's going on there. And then, you know, but I think big picture wise, geopolitically, what's interesting is that Ukraine today is basically what Afghanistan was in the 80s. And in, uh, in 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, uh, in part uh, as a response to terrorism that was being carried out in Afghanistan, because at the time, Afghanistan had a communist government and there was anti-communist terrorism by these Islamist groups going on in 
Afghanistan, uh, and they were supported by the West, by the CIA and groups like that. Um, and then, uh, so the United States started arming the Mujahideen in response to the Soviet invasion. And that's how we got to Taliban. That's how we got Al Qaeda. That's how we got Osama bin Laden. That's happening again now. The, United, the Russians invaded Ukraine, and now the Americans and the West are arming these, uh, the, well, the, the Ukrainian military, as well as all of these neo-Nazi groups and right-wing paramilitaries that are operating in, um, in Ukraine. So it's going to be interesting to see what the long-term impact of that is. It's quite possible that when Russia eventually leaves Ukraine, we're going to see a full-blown neo-Nazi regime in Ukraine, just like we got the Taliban regime at the end of the uh, Soviet-Afghan war. Oh, you can go now. Okay. Um, what was I going to ask? Uh, do you think that there's any potential in the syndicalist movement in, in America? In, in what kind of movement? Syndicalist, you know, like I'm talking about the IWW or something. Right. Um, yeah, I, I actually belonged to, to some anarcho-syndicalist organizations many years ago, uh, back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, I actually belonged to the IWW. And I also belonged to the Workers Solidarity Alliance, which at the time was a, uh, an American section of the IWA, the, um, the international syndicalist organization that also includes the Spanish CNT from the Civil War, Spanish Civil War period. Uh, I think WSA has since gone on, on in their own direction. Um, I, I started moving away from anarcho-syndicalism back in the early 90s because I just didn't see any potential there. Um, I used to do strike support work for labor unions that went on strike. I did some uh, support work for the Eastern Airlines, for Greyhound bus drivers, and for uh, Pittston coal miners. Uh, all of this was in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and what I found is that workers had very little interest in radical revolutionary activity. Um, you know, a lot of them wouldn't even show up for a picket duty. They would just sit at home and drink beer and collect their strike pay. Uh, so that sort of soured me on anarcho-syndicalism. And also at the time, union membership was declining, and it has since declined significantly since then. However, what is interesting is that in the last few years, we've started to see a revival of organized labor activity. Uh, there's been uh, efforts to organize Amazon workers and Starbucks workers and, and some of that kind of stuff. Uh, there have been some other strikes going on recently. Um, as to how far I think that's going to go, I, I don't really know. I, I, I do think that right now we're in a situation where wealth disparities in the United States are roughly where they were in the 1920s. Like the last time there was ever wealth disparity in the United States on this level. It was before the Great Depression a hundred years ago. So given the disparity of wealth, given the impact of globalization, given the impact of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, given the impact of the COVID pandemic and the economic fallout from that, it's possible that there could be a revival of the labor movement um, and that unions could make a comeback. Um, I suspect that if unions do make a comeback, parallel to that, uh, you will see a renewed interest in anarcho-syndicalism. Now, I don't know that anarcho-syndicalism is gonna become a mass movement, um, but I do think that it could make a revival in the sense of being more popular than it has been for quite a while. Uh, if, if labor militancy uh, starts to return. Uh, I do think there are some important differences, though, between e economic life as it was, say, in the heyday of anarcho-syndicalism at the early 20th century and economic life today. Back in those days, uh, you had these company towns where, uh, you know, you had the stereotypical capitalist would own factories uh, and then you would have uh, workers from the local area who worked in the coal mines or the factories or whatever. Uh, and 
that was basically their life station. I mean, they would that that's what they would do for a living their entire lives. Nowadays, labor and capital tend to be a lot more mobile. They tend to be a lot more transient. Uh, for example, if you uh, workers organize a union at a factory somewhere, well, the uh, the owner owners of the company they can just shut the factory down and move to uh, you know move the factory to Mexico or Indonesia or Pakistan or India or somewhere like that. Uh, so it's a lot easier for business interests to dodge uh, labor uh, organizing activities. Uh, I do think it's also true that labor is a lot more transient. You know, in those days, you would have people who worked for the same corporation, the same company their entire life. They, you know, um, even in my parents' generation, that was common. You know, you have people that worked 30 or 40 years for the same company and retire. Nowadays, people change jobs every few years, or, and you have a lot of people who are working multiple jobs simultaneously. Uh, the so-called precariat, uh, the so-called gig economy. Um, so, you know, as to whether, you know, you can organize a bunch of part-time Uber drivers or part-time Starbucks baristas or part-time McDonald's or, or Walmart workers uh, into a labor union that's going to be as effective as, as, say, the United Mine Workers or... Uh, groups like that, um, I, I, I'd be skeptical of that. I would approach that with some degree of skepticism, but I think it's certainly possible that if labor organizing and labor militancy makes a comeback, which it seems to be at least on some level, uh, I do think that anarcho-syndicalism will have a renewed popularity parallel to that. Yeah, you, you got a point. I mean, what you said is exactly the same thing. What you what you said is exactly the same thing Thaddeus Russell said, you know, like he did like a whole book about like what's the guy's name? The dude from Detroit who was in charge of the labor union. Jimmy, Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa. Yeah. Well, you know, and basically in the book he said that the average workers you know, in uh, in Detroit, they didn't care about anarcho-communism and revolutionary socialism and all that. He said, in fact, a lot of those guys voted for conservative candidates. They cared more about what Jimmy Hoffa was giving him than any type of working class solidarity. Right. Well, that uh, I think, interestingly, that is going to be a barrier to labor organizing. Uh, in the United States and other similar countries today, because it, it, if when you have people from the left who are trying to do labor organizing, because so many of them have this kind of politically correct ideology, it's going to be very difficult to build class solidarity uh, across cultural lines. Nowadays, there's been a revival of people on the left who are making the argument that, well, you know, maybe the left has paid a little too much attention to identity politics or cultural politics and things like that. And maybe that's been a distraction from economic issues. And that's why we don't have universal health care and, and things like that. Uh, and you, I've seen a, a range of people on the left making this argument. You've got far left Marxist-Leninist types like Caleb Malpin make this argument. Uh, some of the more social democratic, uh, democratic socialists, uh, people like some of the folks from uh, Jacobin magazine have made this argument. You have some YouTubers like Crystal Ball or, or Jimmy Dore or, or uh, Cal Kalinske have made this argument. Um, but the problem that I see with that is that Class solidarity is possible in a society that you have a, where you have a high level of cultural homogeneity as the United States did in say in the era of the classical labor movement. I don't, I don't wanna to be too simplistic about this. Um, nowadays you have a, a, a culture that is fragmented into all of these diffuse groups, many of whom hate each other. Um, and 
trying to build solidarity across these kinds of cultural lines, I think is gonna be very difficult. Um, the uh, one example is the way that uh, Jimmy Jor got so much flack for interviewing a proud boy, I'm not a proud boy, a boogaloo boy on his program. You know, a lot of people from the left were saying, well, what are you doing uh, interviewing this guy? You know, he's on the right or whatever. Um, I think that, you know, you would have a whole lot of people from the left that if, when it came to doing organized, labor organizing today, they would, their attitude would be, okay, we don't want anybody in the union who's not for gay rights. We don't want anybody in the union who's, who's for abortion. Uh, or not for um, not for abortion rights, rather. Uh, you know, we don't want anybody that you know is a, opposes trans women participating in women's sports or something like that. The, you know, all these cultural issues tend to be something of a litmus test. Uh, now, you have people, like I said, who try to say, no, we we need to keep the two separated. But I, I don't really know that that that's that you can really separate economic and cultural issues because. For so many culture warriors, their economic stance is part of their cultural identity. We see that in the way that a lot of people on the right, they always denounce people on the left as socialists, uh, you know, whether they are or aren't. Um, we also see people on the left denouncing everyone as fascists. Uh, the, uh, you know, I've, I've asked people on the left who have this kind of view, you know, well, we need to get past the culture war and, do labor organizing across class lines, I always say, okay, what, what culture war issues are you willing to compromise on? You know, are, are you willing to compromise on abortion? Are you willing to compromise on gay rights, on trans rights, on immigration, on gun control, on affirmative action, on the Confederate flag? And, and usually the answer is none of it. You know, when you really push them, no, they don't really want to compromise on anything in order to build class solidarity. Yeah, um, you know, this why well, I think that, you know, the hard hat riot happened in the 70s and why you had so many urban Catholics in the heartland vote for Reagan, even though he was kind of like a an asshole, you know, he crushed like the, the, the what was it like the, um, the, the something union with the airport. Yeah, and the you know, air traffic controllers. And yeah. you know what makes that yeah. ironic? Like uh, Patco had actually endorsed him for president the, the year before. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was really, that era when, when Jimmy Carter was leaving, Ronald Reagan was coming in, that was really when the transition from the old New Deal paradigm to the modern neoliberal paradigm was taking place. Like Noam Chomsky once said that ironically, Nixon was the last liberal president. And I think that's true. I think Nixon was really the last president who was the president during the era in which the New Deal Keynesian paradigm was still dominant when it came to economic policy. Starting in the mid-1970s, you start to see Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter kind of roll it, rolling back the New Deal and adopting some more neoliberal type policies. But was, it was with Ronald Reagan that, you know, Reaganomics, that neoliberalism really started to take off, you know, Ronald Reagan. And then, and then that was continued through George H.W. Uh, uh, Bush and Bill Clinton. And every president we've had since Ronald Reagan, arguably since Gerald Ford or Jimmy Carter, has been a neoliberal in terms of their basic policies. Now, Trump brought back a lot of Nixonian rhetoric, a lot of populist rhetoric, a lot of kind of old right sounding rhetoric. But 90% of the time, Trump governed as a standard Reaganite Republican neoliberal as well. Um, so yeah, that's still where we are now. And as, as to whether there could be a return to the pre-neoliberal paradigm, I tend to think not. You know, I, I tend to think that present-day left-wingers and, and some people on the right, too, uh, some of the Catholic Social Democrats and people like that, but, but uh, the people on the left today who say they want to turn back the clock to the pre-neoliberal uh, pre era and go back to the New Deal era or something like it, I think they're kind of in the same league as the conservatives, the social conservatives, who want to turn back the clock on social questions and say, well, we want to go back to the 1950s or, you know, or before the cultural upheaval of the 60s or something like that. Uh, you know, I, I don't think either one of those are happening. I don't think I don't think there's going to be any turning back of the clock 
cultural clock to the to the mid 20th century, and there's not going to be any turning back of the economic clock to the mid 20th century either. Um, I, I'm not really sure where economic policy is going from here, but what seems to be happening is this: the United States is just simply becoming a historically normal society in the sense of being a society where you have a, an oligarchy, an elite of rich people who rule in their own interests. Most people are poor or, or working class. You have a smaller middle class uh, of technocrats and bureaucrats and professional people and all that. Um, and that's, you know, that's what you historically have found in most countries. That's, you know, uh, that's what you find in most parts of the world today. Um, you know, I think in the future, the United States is going to be, the United States is really going in three directions at the same time. We're becoming more like the European Union in the sense that we don't really have a common culture. What we have is something that's sort of a continental trade zone and currency zone, but, you know, including all kinds of cultural groups but which are presided over by an elite that identify with other elites. That's kind of what the European Union is like. You know, the elites of different countries identify more with each other than with the, their own common people. Uh, and I think our elite, you know, our, our American elite, they identify with elites of other countries as well, uh, more so than Americans generally. Uh, and then um, socioeconomically, we're becoming more like a Latin American country. We're starting to see the kind of huge disparity of wealth that you traditionally find in Latin America, like in Brazil and, and countries like that. Um, and then culturally, we're becoming, I think, in some ways more like the Middle East in the sense that we're being fragmented into a lot of warring cultural groups that you know, hate each other and view each other as existential enemies, uh, not just the Middle East, but also the former Yugoslavia, uh, Northern Ireland, uh, a lot of places like that. Um, so we're, we're, all of these things are happening at the same time. And I think that's the future of the United States. We're going to have this, this globalist elite that is our ruling class. We're going to have this kind of Latin American system of social, social economic stratification. And we're going to be internally fragmented into all these quarreling tribal and cultural and sectarian groups that view each other as, as enemies. Um, yeah, you know, like, like I said, on the podcast where, you know, like Charles A. Coulomb, I think it's possible America could be like China in the 1900s, you know, the warlord era, where you had like, after the, the central government failed, you had like these different, I guess you could call them military cliques that fought over power. Well, something like that would happen if, uh, potentially if the American state itself collapsed. Uh, if the United States experienced a full-blown collapse in the same way as the former Yugoslavia or the former uh, Soviet Union. Uh, we we you know, remember that for during the Cold War era, there was this vast communist expanse across the Eurasian landmass. Uh, you had the Soviet Union, which included what is now Russia, plus 15 other countries or 14 other countries. Uh, and then you had the Soviet satellite countries in Eastern Europe, there were seven of those. And then you had the Yugoslav Federation, which is separated from the Soviet Union, but they were, that was a collection of, I think, six or seven countries as well. So you had about 30 countries that were part of this wider communist expanse in, in Eurasia, and it fell apart virtually overnight, or within a few years, all of those were gone. Uh, and out of that, you've got uh, you know, the, the Civil War in Yugoslavia, uh, you've got the total collapse of Russia. You know, Russia in the 90s was, you know, they saw their life, average life expectancy drop about uh, 20 years. Uh, you know, like I have a friend who grew up in Russia in the 90s. He said it was like living through an episode of The Wire, the TV show The Wire. That's, that's what Russia was like in the in the 90s. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think that it's quite possible if the United States just completely fell apart, uh, you could have warlords or, or warring, warring factions uh fighting each other in this kind of fourth generation uh, warfare. Uh, I, I don't think we're that quite there yet. I, I think that, uh, that that was probably a long way off. I, I, uh, I know a few years ago, people used to ask me if I thought a civil war was on the way of the United States. And I, would, I used to say no. 
because I thought Americans were simply too lazy to fight a civil war. You know, I, they would be too worried about it canceling the Super Bowl or interrupting internet service or something. Um, I, after what has happened in the past few years, I'm less confident in that position. Uh, I'm still not ready to say, yeah, we're going to have a civil war at some point in the future. But uh, I am less confident that there's not going to be a civil war in the sense that uh, you know, between the riots that happened in 2020 between, and between the uh, J6 situation, between the uh, all the controversies that were associated with the pandemic, you know, the, the protest against vaccines, against masks, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the polarization that's now going to take place in response to Roe v. Wade being overturned. Uh, also, if Trump runs for president again uh, in 2024, which I suspect he will, uh, you know, and all of that is going to continue the same polarization, the same escalation process that we've been seeing in, uh, in recent years. So it's, you know, I, I'm less confident that there's not going to be a civil war uh, than I once was. Reaching the end of our podcast, I want to thank Keith Preston for being on and as well, Cartrell Payne. Thank you. It's nice talking to you, uh, Preston. If there's anything you want to plug in, what's your future projects like? If you have any of that going on right now. Uh, if you, For listeners who want to know more about me, uh, all you need to do is go to a website called attackthesystem.com, just like it sounds, Attack thesystem.com and uh, you can find information about me. Uh, it, I have a, a general news uh, oriented blog site there that you know, there's, there's news updates every day. Uh, you can subscribe to it and, and get it get on my email list uh, and get your daily news feed. Uh, and you can find hundreds of essays I've written in the past. I've written about half a dozen books. You can find information on those as well. There are other people who contribute to our site. You can check out their work as also. Thank you, Keith Preston and Cartrell Payne for being on. This podcast was brought to you by youtube.com slash pilleater and as well pilleater.substack.com. Okay, thank you. <laughs>